You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant. To shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Welcome to the second half of our NBA season preview, getting you listeners ready to get back into the action. If you haven't already, be sure to check out part one of this series, where we talked with Colin Ward-Henninger about the biggest storylines in the Western Conference this season. While I have your intention, I'll also implore you, if you haven't already, to listen to last week's episode, number 103, where Aaron spoke with Dave Zirin from The Nation about the intersection between politics and sports in today's landscape. A really interesting and important conversation that you shouldn't miss. Also, with the season about to start, it's a really important time for us to be discovered by new listeners just like you. So if you enjoy what you're hearing, please make sure to take about a minute of your time to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave us a quick review. We really appreciate it, and it really helps us out. In part two of our season preview series, we're lucky enough to talk about the Eastern Conference with Seku Smith, whom you know from his work as a senior analyst for NBA Digital, where he writes for NBA.com and hosts the Hangtime podcast. Seku told us that the most memorable sporting event he ever went to was a soccer match between Saudi Arabia and Morocco at the Rose Bowl during the 1984 LA Olympics when he was just 12 years old. He describes the atmosphere as being so intense that he thought the two sides were going to kill each other. Thanks for joining us, Seku. Really great to have you on. We have a lot to get through today, so I'll jump right into it. There was so much roster turnover and notable changes up and down the Eastern Conference this offseason. With all that in mind, what makes you so confident in an eighth straight finals appearance for LeBron James? I mean, Le- LeBron makes me confident. You know, when you're talking about a sure thing in the NBA right now, you know, something that's that you look up at the start of a season and say, barring a catastrophe, you know, this is guaranteed to take place. It's LeBron getting his team to the finals. It's happened so much, obviously, in, in these past seven seasons that, you know, you almost take it for granted. You, you just assume that whatever happens on the Western Conference side, LeBron's team is going to be standing there on, in the East. And, you know, I did all of them in Miami. Um, I've done all of them in Cleveland. And, you know, he's, he's just an undeniable force to be reckoned with. I, I remember seeing LeBron when he was 16 years old. And, you know, he, at that time, he was a phenom, but, you know, it could have gone either way. He could have been a guy who came into the league and excelled. He could have been a guy who came in and flamed out. You didn't know. There were no sure things. But I think LeBron has proven himself to be the closest thing to an absolute sure thing we've seen in this generation of the NBA. And that's why whatever group the Cavaliers have around him, whether it's old friends like Dwayne Wade who are on the other side of the mountain, former foes like Derrick Rose and Isaiah Thomas and Jay Crowder. It doesn't matter who he has with him. If he's healthy and he's as locked in as he's always been, right now you put the smart money on his team being in the final. Speaking of all those new pieces the Cavs brought in this offseason to surround LeBron, Derrick Rose, Dwayne Wade, Jay Crowder, Isaiah Thomas, Jeff Green, and others, 
Tyrone Liu seems to have a tall task in integrating all those pieces at once, first and foremost by making the decision about who's going to be starting and who's coming off the bench. What did you make of his proposed choice for the opening day starting lineup? Um, I, listen, I think Tyrone Liu had to make a, a sound decision about who would be best suited in that first group, and not so much for the good of that group, but for the good of the guy you were making the choice about. So if it's D. Wade, is he better suited in your starting five or off your bench? Or if it's J.R. Smith, is he better suited in your starting five or off that bench? And I think by virtue of the way J.R. has played throughout his career, where he's had to adjust to different roles, being a starter, playing as a reserve, being kind of a wild card guy, I think he gives you something that's it's much more measured in a bench role than D. Wade would have. D. Wade's been a starter basically his entire career. I think in his career, he's maybe come off the bench, what, 10, 11 times? I mean, that's to ask him to come in and play a role as a bench guy right now. And, and the fact that he's not a great three-point shooter would have been asking a lot for him to come in cold and, and be effective and make an impact on that team. I think as a starter, you give him a chance to not only do what he's always done as a scorer and an offensive playmaker, but you give him an opportunity to get in a rhythm and to play and facilitate for other guys and to play off of LeBron at a high level, which you know he can do. So I, I think you'll have to examine it again when, based on how Derrick Rose is playing, when I, Isaiah Thomas comes back and when he gets healthy, and do you make a change? Do you use Isaiah Thomas off the bench? It's going to be a lot of tough choices come March, early April, and into the postseason for Teron Lou. But I think you cross those bridges when you get to them if you're the coaching staff in Cleveland, and focus on finding the right group right now to help you get going, you know, at the start of the season. The team who most see as the biggest obstacle between the Cavs and their fourth straight finals appearance is the Boston Celtics, who also saw an almost unprecedented amount of roster turnover after securing the number one seed last season. They'll be returning only four total players and only one starter from last year's squad, does Brad Stevens have his work cut out for him if they're expecting a repeat of last year's success? Well, look, Brad Stevens has one of the better challenges I can think of for a coach in recent years in that you take a roster that played in the conference finals and basically shred it. You lose Avery Bradley, who I felt like was really, you know, like Jay Crowder and Isaiah was really the guts of that Celtics team, along with Al Horford, Marcus Smart and some of those other guys. But, you know, when you add the kind of star power that they did, when you bring in a Kyrie Irving and a Gordon Hayward and you look at the way the floor stretches out with the shooters they have now and the, the offensive talent they have, it's a great it's a great challenge for Brad Stevens. You're a brilliant coach by most people's standards. I mean, he came into the league and, and knocked a lot of people's hair back with just his ability to adjust and find ways to make the best of whatever situation he was handed by Danny Ainge in terms of personnel. You're not intimidated at all if you're Brad Stevens by the challenge that you have in front of you. You're starting with a pretty good core group of guys. Al Horford's an absolute winner and, and has adjusted throughout his career to whatever's been thrown at him. Kyrie is super motivated to come in and play at an extremely high level, as is Gordon Hayward. So it's to me, it's you know, these are first world problems they got. You know, these are these are issues that any coach, you know, worth his whistle, you know, would want to have. How do I figure out 
a way to integrate all this talent. That includes the young guys. That includes, you know, Jalen Brown and, and certainly Jason Tatum. I mean, you got you got some great problems on your hands if you're trying to figure out how to integrate all of that quality talent into a cohesive bunch that's going to play at a high level this season. I like that. First world problems. <laughs> it's so rare, too, what the Cavaliers and, and Celtics did. Just the two teams that matched up in the Eastern Conference Finals, swapping their star point guards, unprecedented. It's going to be exciting to see how those teams gel, how things change when Isaiah Thomas comes back. And that guy, Brad Stevens, that we were just talking about, he's still 40 years old, and it seems like he's been coaching the Celtics for a while now since leaving Butler. So lots of early success for him, and I'm interested to see how he meets that challenge. Like you said, a good problem for him to have. But then when you look going down the Eastern Conference, there are some solid teams that bring continuity to the table, unlike Cleveland and Boston. I'm talking about the Wizards, Raptors, Bucks. So while they may not have as much firepower as those top two teams or a guy named LeBron James, there's a lot to like about those three. Of those, does anyone stand out to you? And what do you think that team's chances are of potentially sneaking into a top two seed? I think it's tough for any of them to to move past the Celtics or Cavaliers just in theory right now. But I love the Wizards group. They're not as long on talent as Cleveland or Boston, but they probably have better chemistry and a better understanding of each other right now than either one of them. And I think the same goes for Toronto. You know, bringing back their core group of guys is huge for them. The team that I like, though, that's the kind of my wildcard team in the East is Milwaukee. I think they do have a depth of talent that could put them in a position to challenge for one of those top two or three spots if a bunch of things go right for them. And it starts with every team in the league. It starts with staying healthy and being as healthy and having your stars as available as they can possibly be. But I I just think Milwaukee has a guy in Giannis who is such a talent and is such an off-the-charts specimen in terms of what he brings to the table that if he has one of those years where he goes to that next level and it's hard, you know, how do you get better than what we've seen of him, you know, last year when he was just unbelievable, but he can really become a more consistent threat as an outside shooter and then become more of a playmaker on both ends of the floor and and impact his team in different ways that I think, you know, he could be a guy, if he has a crazy season, then Milwaukee becomes a team that has a chance to really upset the order of things in the East. Now, it it would take, obviously, some other guys stepping up and playing at a high level on that team. I don't know what Jabari Parker is going to look like coming back off his injury, but Milwaukee is a team that would worry me if I was the rest of the East because if they hit the sweet spot and, and Jason Kidd can find a way to push all the right buttons, they're dangerous. Giannis is still 22. It's crazy. Early December, he'll turn 23. And I completely agree with you, though, about his growth potential. If you look at his numbers, he went from under 13 points per game in his sophomore season to nearly 17. And he was averaging 22.9 points per game last year, but he shot 27% from three. If he can hone that three-point shot, even though I, I know that's not his game, 
he can just be unstoppable. I'm curious if you think that he could be potentially even a fringe MVP candidate, or am I getting too ahead of myself, depending on how good the Bucks are? Yeah, he could be. I don't think that's going too far at all. And I think, you know, people people look at MVP candidates and they want it to be guys who are established names or on on a team that's reached a certain level. To me, an MVP candidate really is about the specific season you're having and whether or not it's lifting your team up to another level. But Giannis, he he was, to me, in that conversation, you know, at times last season. He had stretches where he was playing as well as, as anybody. And you can't dismiss that. You can't take that for granted, obviously, if you're the Bucks, The biggest challenge for any young guy who's trying to knock on the door and play at that next level is being consistent. And I, I talked with Tracy McGrady about that this summer before he went into the Hall of Fame. I asked him. That was a great interview, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I asked him about it off the record, on the record. I asked him about Russ for a piece that I'm working on to kick off the season next week. You know, like, how hard is it to perform at that level night after night? Is You know, because I think people assume a guy becomes a 20-point scorer and he just, you know, it kind of comes easily. And he said that was the most difficult thing he had to do in his career was trying to find a way, you know, to be that alpha on the floor every night, no matter the circumstance, whether you got your shot that night or not, whether you're feeling good or not, you know, I mean, any little nagging injury, anything could throw you off on a given night. And when you're that top level player, you got to find a way to have the same impact night after night after night. And I think if you watch Russell Westbrook last year, to me, that's what was different about Russ last year that we hadn't seen from him before. It's not just the triple doubles. It was the fact that Russ was an impact player consistently every single night out. And Giannis has to be that to me to get to that level. If he wants to get in the conversation of being an MVP, you can't have two or three off nights. You got to be a guy who's accountable for superstar type production every single night. And another thing that Giannis had to contend with was also moving to a different country, adapting to the culture here in his transition into stardom. So I think it's really exciting how good he's become, or even great already. I don't think that's any exaggeration to say and how much greater he can transition into. The thing I wanted to ask you, and you asked David Aldridge this. I believe he said the 76ers, but I'm not going to accept Philadelphia as an answer here. <laughs> so they're pretty hyped right now. And we'll get to that a little bit later, whether that's fair or not. Mm-hmm. But there are a number of rebuilding teams, if you look at the bottom of the East, or just teams that people have kind of overlooked or, or not really talked about. I'm curious who you have, if any, potentially surprising some people here you know it's tough in the east to pick out surprise teams (laughs) unfortunately with the migration of talent in the opposite direction there aren't as many that you look at and say they got a chance to really shock the world but i think there are two teams i think that could be pleasant surprises in the east if the ball bounces their way the first of those teams is miami i think miami could be a real eye-opener as a group with what they brought back. Hassan Whiteside hopefully taking another step in his evolution and becoming a more consistent force, dominant force night in, night out on both ends of the floor. One of my favorite players on the planet Earth, Deion Waiters, 
Uh, <laughs> guy who's never lacked for the utmost confidence in himself and in his game. I think you bring him and some other guys back into the fold with new contracts, feeling secure. So you hope that gives them the energy and impetus to go out and play at that next level and not be comfortable and not kind of fall back into a comfort zone because they have those long-term deals that take care of their future. So I think Miami could be one of those teams. Goran Dragic had a huge summer, obviously, MVP in Eurobasket, coming in hopefully with the momentum that gives him another brush in, in, in his bag to play with. And Eric Spolstra, people don't even realize that he's the longest tenure coach in the league outside of Greg Popovich, which is pretty staggering. If you think about where he was those first couple of years in Miami with LeBron and D-Wade and Bosch, where everybody was wondering if he was going to survive. And now here he is, you know, the, the second longest tenure coach in the entire league behind Popovich. The other team that I think could open some eyes and, and really surprise some people if they're capable of surviving themselves, you know, managing their own locker room and the personalities in their own locker room is the Detroit Pistons. I think they got off on such a bad trip last year just as a group, you know, not being connected and having everybody all in and understanding their roles and on the same wavelength in terms of what their goals were and what they're trying to get done. I think this year they've got an opportunity to kind of write that and Stan Van Gundy has done a pretty good job, I think, of looking at the deficiencies that plagued that team last year and understanding that they had to make some changes. They had to have some very frank conversations with each other. He and Stanley Johnson hopefully have put their issues behind them. You know, and the talent is there. Andre Drummond should be a force if he's locked in and playing the way he, we know he can. Reggie Jackson is coming back and trying to find his game again. I, I'm not saying they're going to be top. With a you know six seven team, but I'm saying I wouldn't be surprised if Detroit is fighting it out for that final playoff spot if they can get it together. Yeah, there seem to be probably at least three open playoff spots in the East with three of last year's teams, the Bulls, Hawks, and Pacers taking significant steps back in the off season. It sounds like from that answer that you might be taking Miami and Detroit to fill two of those spots. As crazy as it might have sounded a couple seasons ago, or even at the beginning of last season, a lot of people have been penciling in Philadelphia for that other spot. What would you say are fair expectations for them? You know, as far as Philadelphia, I don't think they're going to be capable of, of being evaluated reasonably. I just don't. I think given the hype surrounding Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, Fultz, and all those young guys that they have, it's going to be impossible for anybody to give them a real baseline, you know, kind of a, a reasonable expectation for what they can do as a group. You know, and nobody even mentions Dario Sarch, you know, who had an outstanding rookie season, but they got a lot of good quality pieces, but expecting them to navigate the process, you know, it's hard to not use that phrase when you're talking about that many young guys together. And I've seen young teams that are piled up with lottery picks and people expect them to to get there overnight. And it's just not realistic. It's, there's so much learning that has to go on, so much starting and stopping and failures and successes that you have to weather as a group to become a playoff team. The wild card that they have, though, that I don't think we've seen out of any other young conglomeration of talent like this is they have Joel Embiid, who's a true – Unicorn. I know we've assigned that designation to Kristaps Porzingis, but 
I mean, Embiid is just such a rare talent, you know, in terms of his size and his ability and things he can do on the court. If he could possibly play 62 games instead of 31, I think that changes, you know, the trajectory for the Sixers dramatically. Just having him out there for that amount of time, he he hasn't played enough for me or anybody else to be able to guarantee what their fortunes would be with him as their, their centerpiece and dominant player. He's played enough apparently for the Sixers to give him a huge, you know, contract extension. And I think that's a risky and wise move all in one by the Sixers. You have to be careful and play the game properly and be prepared for what's to come if he stays healthy and assumes the position as one of the truly best players in the league at his position and, and overall. But Philly's dynamic is, is a little different. We're going to see how much they need J.J. Redick and some of those veterans to fill in the holes for those young guys because I think there's going to be a lot of growing pains, a lot of tough nights for Simmons and Fultz and some of those other guys who are just getting their feet wet in the NBA. You talked a bit about the risk that the Sixers are undertaking in giving Joel Embiid, a guy that's played a total of 31 games in three years, that massive five-year, $148 million contract extension. Zach Lowe called that deal the most complicated contract he's ever seen because of how Philadelphia mitigated that risk a little bit by including some injury provisions that give them the option to void the deal if he misses too much time because of his back or foot problems. With that in mind, is there anything that Embiid needs to show immediately in this, the first year after signing that extension, that'll put their minds at ease? Well, look, year one of that new deal for Joel Embiid is going to be tough for him to live up to unless he goes out and plays, like I mentioned, 60-plus games and is a dominant force and shows us that what we've seen in a small sample size is something that can be extrapolated over an entire season for him. And I don't ever put an actual number on how many games the guy has to play to justify his inclusion into an MVP conversation or whatever. But I think 60-plus at least gives you enough games where we can say this is a quality evaluation of what you bring to the table. You don't have to play 82. I, I know that's not realistic necessarily all the time. But anything over 60 validates whatever you've done that season in my eyes. And Embiid has to go out and play 60-plus to lock that down. I don't think anything under that is going to make me feel any better about it. You know, the way deals have been dished out the past couple of years, I'm not even as concerned about the numbers, you know, the money he's making. That's You think about some of the guys that are walking around the league right now with contracts that are far beyond what they bring in terms of, you know, nuts and bolts impact. I'm not worried about Embiid in that respect. So I'm not worried about the, him living up to the contract. I'm more worried about him living up to his own potential, living up to the profile that, that we've kind of all created for him as a talent and the fact that there's an open conversation about who is and could be the best big man in basketball, quote unquote big man, the next few years. And he's in it on the strength of 31 games and, and arguably the best athlete Twitter feed we've seen. Yeah, from a selfish standpoint, we really want to see him on the court as much as possible. He and Ben Simmons think form a really exciting duo. And that's not even mentioning Saric, Foltz. They added J.J. Redick, of course, veteran sharpshooter. Mm -hmm. 
So you did mention Stan Van Gundy a couple of questions ago and your hope that he'll get on a better page with Stanley Johnson and just all the talent that they have there. Help us understand the level of pressure that's on Stan Van Gundy right now. He's he's one of those rare executive coach types in the NBA. Doc Rivers no longer in that situation in Los Angeles, for example. And Stan Van Gundy hasn't achieved close to the level of success yet that he's wanted to there. And then also, if there are any other head coaches out east that you think are potentially on the hot seat, maybe like Steve Clifford or something. Um, I, look, I think Stan's issue is, from a pressure standpoint, I don't know that there's any misguided pressure surrounding the Pistons that they're going to be some championship caliber team. But what Stan has to do is is find a way to take the pieces that he's assembled and that the front office, his front office staff has assembled, and make them work on the floor. Like you're picking these ingredients, so you know ultimately the onus is on you as the team president and head coach to make sure that they are, all these pieces fit. And when they don't, naturally people are going to start questioning. Well, did the team president mess this up, or is the coach the one that's messing this up? Either way, it, it falls back on that person's shoulders in terms of responsibility. Like, if you're going to pick the players, you have to bring them in and develop them. You have to have a quality player development program that allows you to take the talent you bring in and get the very best out of them. I think it's a different situation, obviously, for other coaches in the East that don't have those dual responsibilities, obviously. I don't know that the hot seat is the right term for it, but I certainly think there's some pressure in some different places. Steve Clifford in Charlotte certainly has some, I'm sure, pressure in his own mind to get that group back into playoff contention. I would assume they feel like they belong there. The other coach, believe it or not, who I think is in a really interesting situation is Mike Budenholz in Atlanta. That is. Does he stay for the rebuild or what goes on there? uh, You know, you never know. I mean, he's been such a find as a head coach, I think, if you think about his tenure in Atlanta and what he's had to work with from his first year there to now, they really have emphasized that player development component to the point that basically every guy they've brought in, you know, they found a way to push him to be his very best. And you say, well, now that you're doing it with such young players before, you know, think about it now, before they were doing it with guys who were already established NBA players for the most part, maybe weren't stars or all-stars, but they were guys who were proven commodities in the league. Paul Millsap, Kyle Corbin. Even when you look at Damari Carroll, who wasn't a star by any stretch, but was certainly a valuable player when they got their hands on him. You know, Al Alford and Jeff Teague were guys who were drafted by the Hawks before Mike Boonholzer showed up. So he was working with some incumbent talent. But Dennis Schroeder has been a real fine. You know, Torian Prince, I know they have high hopes for. John Collins, they believe, has a chance to be something special. So. A lot of that rests at the door of Mike Budenholzer, the coach, because now he doesn't have to worry about the front office aspect with Travis Schlenken, you know, in town as mm-hmm. running the basketball operation. But I think you're right, and there's there's a question like, does a coach with his resume that's won the way he has the past few years and established himself want to stick around for the pain that we know could be involved with a rebuilding situation? I think it's a great question that will only be answered throughout the course of this season and just how tough it is to manage a team that people don't have terribly high expectations for. We'll have to wish your good friend Lang and the Hawks some luck this season. Ah. 10 straight 
they they haven't missed the playoffs in 10 years and it's looking like that streak is going to end unfortunately as they transition looking forward to the future the last question or second to last maybe (laughs) i wanted to ask you about the knicks so in late june phil jackson finally resigned he had enough and they got rid of carmelo anthony just in time for media day to avoid that potentially awkward situation how do you think Knicks fans in general are viewing this situation? Is it, do you think, a mix of a sigh of relief that this is over and we can move forward with Kristaps Porzingis or just general impatience around the fan base? They're always just wanting to win and it's taking a lot longer than expected. I think they're viewing it with one hand covering half their you know, face. It's like one hand over your eye and kind of, <laughs> The fingers straddling the other eye, hoping that, you know, you can peek through there and see some signs of hope. And, and I feel for Knicks fans, but if they believe or think that they've been a factor, you know, in, in terms of a championship, even an Eastern Conference championship, the past 15 years, like it, it's just not reality. They have issues that are much bigger than Phil Jackson or Carmelo alone. You know, and I think they've done some things to help fix that. Bringing in Scott Perry, who's, you know, who's a proven basketball operator in this league. And just that sometimes that's more important than the players you have and all this other stuff. It's just having somebody in a decision-making position who's really engaged, you know, in, in kind of the sausage-making of a quality organization, a quality team in the NBA. You know, a lot of times that work is done outside of the spotlight. It's not done on that New York stage where, you know, I know you have a an army of reporters and media covering the Knicks all the time. So whatever they do is magnified. Whatever they have going on is, you know, has a light on it that maybe some other team doesn't. So it makes the job more difficult or it makes the criticism more pointed. It makes the, the evaluation of that team or of that operation something that's highlighted in ways that it won't be in other places so you have to take all of that into account and then ask yourself when you look at that Knicks roster what do they have that sets them apart from the Eastern Conference you know what do they have that would fuel a playoff season and I would argue that they just don't have enough of those things for us to view them fans general observers whoever they can't be viewed in that light you know, in terms of are they ready to challenge for a spot at the playoff table in Eastern Conference right now? It's just not realistic for, for them to be there. It's tough for these franchises that are just taking a lot longer than they wanted to to get to to that point, the mountaintop, and, and especially in such an unforgiving environment like New York where there's so much pressure to perform and to do it quickly. So we definitely feel for the Knicks fan base and at least they've got a good one in Kristaps. And I really want to thank you for taking the time out of your weekend to join us. It's been a lot of fun. This is, I promise, the last question. I'm going to give you an open-ended one. Hopefully, I don't put you on the spot. Just whether or not we've talked about or touched on this player or team, feel free to, to bring up whomever you want. Is there a particular storyline, player, team, really anything that you're paying close attention to, something that 
particularly fascinates you this upcoming season in the East? You know, there there are several, and and I appreciate you guys having me. As a podcast co-host myself, I know how hard it is to lock people down and, and get guests, and, and then also to get the technology. The technology in itself is a big <laughs> enough challenge for anybody that's doing podcasts. So shout out to you guys, you know, on all the success you've had. But Thank you. You know, if, if I'm drawing the picture in the East this year and what it looks like, and I don't mean this to disrespect Boston and Cleveland, but to me, barring catastrophe, they're guaranteed to be in the mix when we get to the end of the season. So I don't focus on them as much now as I will later. The player, though, that I will focus on, and there's two of them in particular in the East that I just I won't be able to ignore every night, curious what they did, what kind of impact that. And one of them, somebody you probably think, yeah, a no-brainer. And the other one is somebody that's maybe off the radar. First one is Kyrie. I don't think there's any doubt that Kyrie Irving, based on what he did this summer, you know, requesting a trade and then being traded from Cleveland to Boston and putting himself in that position. I want to see if Kyrie lives up to what he believes he can be as not just a great player, a scorer, one of the elite clutch players in the league, but also a guy who who makes his teammates better. I think listening to his words when he was asked about why he wanted to go elsewhere and start over, I think this is about a 25-year-old guy who wants to prove to himself and everybody else that he's more than than what we've given him credit for being, which is one of the league's best players, no question. But I don't think he feels like he's gotten his respect as a complete player in this league. And there's something about guys when they play with a chip on their shoulder or something to prove that makes them hard to ignore. I, I, I put Isaiah Thomas last year in that same category. It's a guy who he made you want to watch him because of the way he performed night in and night out. It was because he's going around trying to make sure you understand that he is an elite player in this league. And he did a great job of convincing people, I think. Kyrie has set himself up for that type of season in Boston. And I will enjoy watching him night in and night out try and prove that. The second guy that's on my list is a guy I've known and watched since he was in high school. And that's Dwight Howard. And if the ship is sailed for Dwight, if he's no longer going to be the impact player he believes he can be, then it's going to be a sad finish to his career in this league in terms of him never really getting back to even anything close to that level of stardom he had achieved in Orlando. I would just like to see if Dwight could even get back to all-star caliber play in Charlotte. And I think he's got an opportunity sitting in front of him to really reestablish himself and maybe change some opinions about who he is. But it has to happen immediately. It can't be a, a slow grind for him with the Hornets. He has to come out, be an impact player immediately and and kind of change perceptions about who he is and what he has left right away. I don't think we can wait until the pre-All-Star break or, you know, something like that. I don't, he can't afford to get cooking in late January. It has to happen from opening night mm -hmm. and be something that he does on a regular basis in order to change those perceptions about who he is now as a player. I'm glad you brought up Dwight Howard. He often gets lost in the conversation, kind of an afterthought. I think he's treated as. But thanks again for coming on. It was a pleasure. And try to get some rest, too, before the NBA season starts. Store up if you can. I'll do that, fellas. Thank you very much for having me. Our pleasure. Enjoy the season. Thank you.